Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you can get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now for today's episode, let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. What we're going to be discussing is the topic of customers who are the drivers of business disruption. Let me read that back to you. Customers, the drivers of business disruption. You may have heard cliches like the customer is always right or listen to your customers. Uh, I can tell you on a more serious note, we've interviewed folks here on Business Creators Radio who actually have given a structure for how to engage in a valuable conversation that helps your customers find their way to you, helps your prospects find your way to you. And today, I want to build upon that and add another dimension to it when we look at customers as drivers of business disruption. And to share with us on that topic today is a gentleman named Suman Sarkar. He is a partner with 3S Consulting and an international consultant who has advised more than 40 Fortune 500 companies in strategy and operations. His new book, which is called Customer Driven Disruption, is a blueprint for showing how companies must adapt to ever-changing global demographics and markets. It draws on the author's extensive experience and features case studies from companies around the world that have thrived in volatile, highly competitive marketplaces. Suman has published numerous articles in business journals in his first book, The Supply Chain Revolution, is an Amazon top seller in its genre. So, Suman Sarkar, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time and speaking with me today. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Now, at this point, we probably have some listeners who are leaning in a little bit. They've got a separate browser tab open, and they're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, trying to... The, design or gain more information about this Suman Sarkar, and I'm going to spell his name, S-U-M-A-N-S-A-R-K-A-R. You're welcome. And check out 3E Consulting, or excuse me, 3SConsulting.com. I'm so excited about this. But what we want to do here is we want to help our listeners get a chance to get to know our guest a little bit better. And before we dive into our conversation about how customers are the drivers of business disruption, Suman, if you could tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community, market, and audience. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to be short with this. I, I grew up in India, but, you know, eventually I, dis- I worked for P&G, Procter & Gamble, and then I decided to come to U.S. and I joined consulting. In the last 20 years, I have consulted with major uh, corporations all across the world. And um, and, and I had, you know, great time working with uh, very many bright people. Um, Lately, uh, or over the last 10 years, I I have 
become a little more concerned about uh, companies struggle with disruption. You know, the businesses, large businesses are failing and, and leadership seems to be kind of not in tune with, with what's going on in the market. And the book that you see uh, that we talked about, Customer Driven Disruption, is based on my work with large clients and how they have lost touch with their customers and what they can do in order to bring back success to their companies. The fact is most large companies in the U.S. are not growing organically. I mean, you know, their customer base is not really growing. It's shrinking, and most of the growth is either coming because of the price increase or acquisitions, right, buying somebody else. Right. And those are not very sustainable. And this book kind of says, hey, let's focus back on customers, what really matters to business. You know, I think that's very important. I want to highlight something you just said, that a lot of companies here – are not really getting more customers. The ones that are growing are growing actually by two ways, one of which is raising prices so that they're uh, realizing a bigger revenue and profit margin, if any exists, out of the same customers they have now or even potentially less, or they're simply acquiring other companies. And by acquiring those other companies, also acquiring those other companies' customers. And neither one of those you said are sustainable because there comes a point where you're going to outprice yourself and there are only so many other companies you can buy before you simply run out of customers to buy. Absolutely. So let's look at the challenges with both of them. Um, and, and I can give you an example. Um, Starbucks, you know, is a, is, is a very famous brand and people love to go there, right? Yes. But if you look at Starbucks go, growth over the last several years, what you would find is their transactions are not going. Transaction is a way of seeing if people are buying more more products from them, right, um, in, in the U.S. And what you would see is their growth is coming essentially from price increase. It's true for FedEx. It's true for, I can keep rattling up Procter & Gamble. I can keep rattling the names of the companies. Right. And, and what they, they are doing is they keep improving their products a little bit and then charge higher and higher prices. Look at Apple, what it does with iPhone. Right. Eventually, it catches up with you. The customers get fed up with these price increases, and they find somebody else provides, a, you know, better better product, better service, and they move. Gillette, for example, used to be the category leader. Many, you know, people love to shave with Gillette blades. Now right. there are many other in the market, right? And and people are moving away from Gillette. Gillette is having a hard time, even after cutting cost prices, to get customers back. Price increase is not a sustainable way of growth. Uh, meaning, you know, it's, it's not pro- providing value to customers. So that's one. The second is acquisitions. And we read about acquisitions every day. You open up and AT&T bought this company and some other company bought another company. Acquisition has been a big strategy, business strategy, um, you know, starting from the days of GE. Um, and, and, you know, look what, it ha- what happened to GE eventually, right? Uh, it's struggling uh, with all the acquisitions, and now it's uh, starting to, you know, hive off many of its businesses. Uh, acquisitions is not a sustainable strategy unless it helps create value for customers. But cost companies don't buy other companies because of that. They buy essentially to try reduce customer choices, and thereby they have a leg up on on their competition. 
eventually it gets into problem. For example, in the, my book, I talk about how GE tried to squeeze their railroad customers, GE's transportation, and eventually, uh, you know, the railroad customers moved away from GE uh, transportation to other businesses. Uh, and we see that happening in industry after industry. So, you know, um, lately uh, I, I was reading about how AT&T is struggling to pay for its acquisitions, and, and now, you know, it doesn't have money, cash flow, to pay for... 5G and other technology that it plans to introduce. So uh, acquisitions has limitations, uh, two limitations. One is if it doesn't create for value for customers, customers will not buy more. And the second is companies end up paying much, much more than what's reasonable. And then, you know, even the core business suffer because the good money then goes to pay for the bad money, right? So it's, you have to relook companies and leaders will have to relook at their strategies and figure out what can add value to their customers and, and pursue those, not just do things that investors think are good for their company. If, right. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes dollars and cents, literally. So getting into this idea of disruption, Suman, and thank you very much for that detail on acquisitions and price increases. You know, we've heard in so many publications, so many speeches, so many news programs, the technology is the driver of disruption. Say, for example, as you mentioned, the iPhone and the Tesla. Now, you say this is a big mistake, that technology is not actually the driver of disruption. What's going on with that? Yes, most people believe technology is the driver of disruption. Unfortunately, if you look, look at it, closely what you would find it's not the technology it's the customers that are driving disruption technology is just an enabler some technologies that help you know uh, help companies to deliver better value for the companies are successful some are not and and when companies tend to invest blindly behind technology uh, they are are not very successful Um, and I I give examples around you know um, (laughs) The the one that comes to mind really is uh, uh, which one should I talk about? Um, uh, uh, this uh, self driving cars, right? There is a lot written about the self driving cars o- o- over time, right? That how it will change the whole industry, how you don't need drivers anymore. Uh, you know, the cars will come and deliver groceries to your home, and and, and many things. But Google has been at it for last what fifteen years or so from the days of DARPA when they uh, featured the self-driving car, uh, vehicles, they have perfected the technology. But if you read what Google is saying is that, hey, I can't get customers to use it because either it's too expensive, it's too cumbersome, or, or you know, they haven't figured out how to make their value proposition work. And the whole idea that, hey, self-driving car will somehow change the car industry, uh, if you look at fundamentally, it doesn't really work. So let me take a step back. The reason people the, the customer needs for transportation is very simple. I want to go from one place to another very quickly. I want to do it affordably and, you know, uh, and safely, right? Meaning those are the three major things. In addition to that, they also are thinking about if it's good for the environment, it's not polluting and all that, right? Meaning let's say four or five elements that drive customer choice for transportation. Now, we have multiple options. We can take a car, we can take a public transport, or, or you know, take an Uber, or whatever. We, we have a lot of choices. But fundamentally, the choices that win address those needs very, very well. And if you look at 
the solution that self-driving car does, it doesn't help improve any of those. It's not very affordable. It's not faster. It's not safer as it made it out to be. So, so it has a ways to go. But if you look at another technology, which is not really talked about much, is the flying taxi, which is being tested in Dubai and other places. You will see lots and lots of videos on, on, on YouTube. It takes you from point A to B much faster because it doesn't depend on the road network. Uh, it's, it's quicker in that sense. We don't know how much it will cost. And we also don't know how safe it will be, but those are being worked on right now. What we know is for sure that technology helps some way address customer needs, right? This is how Ford started his car company. When, when, he, when he looked at customer need of faster transportation, he thought cars can take people from one place to another much faster than the horses in those days, right? Yes. Similarly, today, perhaps, you know, the flying taxi will do the same to the car industry. Self-driving car, I don't know where it fits in, at least today, right, based on what we see in terms of technology, technology development. But car companies, tech companies, retailers, everybody is talking about self-driving cars. And I have no idea why that's a great solution. Uh, maybe I'm not as educated in self-driving car, but to me it sounds not a great value proposition to customers. Yeah, well, speaking of Henry Ford, he famously said that if you ask customers what they want, uh, they would tell you that they want a faster horse. Now, that being said, he pioneered a number of different things. So we can speak about the assembly line process and the idea of giving, uh, the idea of paying people $5 a day. Now, $5 a day was a princely wage back in those days. And he wasn't doing it so much out of altruism. But he knew that if he paid his workers extremely well, they would stay, which would reduce his retention costs. They would show up for work every day, which would reduce his absenteeism costs. And they would be motivated to do a good job, which would, re- which would result in a higher quality product. Now, coming back to customers, he also understood uh, in contrast to some of the other automakers of the day, and if you look at the history of automobiles, particularly in the 1910s and the 1920s, there are all kinds of brands and models that have come and gone that you've never heard of. And some of these vehicles were quite interesting. Ford had an understanding that it wasn't so much the car itself that was the disruptor. It was the ability to move quickly and increase your range uh, over which you could travel, being facilitated by the technology, which was the car. It wasn't the car itself that came and changed people's lives. It was people wanting to change their lives that led to the popularity of the car. And that's where he came up with the idea of the mass-produced vehicle with interchangeable parts. And he also famously said, any color you want as long as it's black, although history tells us that most of the cars were actually green. But the point being is he, is he understood the car itself was not the disruptor. The car itself was simply the facilitator of the disruption that was brought about by the customers who bought the car. Absolutely. It's the customers that died disruption. So I, I, I can give you an example from another industry, if, you, if I may add. Yes. Uh, take a look at uh, the growth of uh, discount grocery in Europe. Right. Uh, we are seeing Aldi is coming into U.S. and, you know, they are opening stores here. But if you look at what Aldi did in Europe, it's amazing. Um, what, what they did was um, they came out with 
discount retailer, we call it, right? Discount food, uh, discount grocers. And everybody thinks about, hey, discount grocers is means, you know, it's not good quality and all that. But Aldi put it on its head and their products are much, much better quality than anything else that is available in the market, but at a lower price because they work with, you know, um, wide branded products and, and with, uh, directly with the suppliers. And by doing that, they offered a value proposition which other grocers couldn't match in Europe. So even initially, you know, people who are looking for lower cost products went to Aldi, but eventually everybody started going to Aldi and Little and other, other discount retailers. And now these discount retailers are the biggest retail uh, grocers in most markets in Europe. The same thing is happening here in the U.S. under our noses. Aldi is likely to become the third largest grocer in the U.S., but we all we hear in the news is how uh, you know Walmart and Target and others are doing delivery of uh, grocery to home. It doesn't address the fundamental need of customers who go for uh, go for grocery shopping. They're looking for fresh products. They're looking for uh, 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 you know affordable products, a good quality product. None of the solutions that uh, Walmart or Kroger or anybody else is offering is working. Kroger has spent a fortune trying to automate their, you know, uh, their warehouses and everything, but their customer base is not growing. So, you know, I mean, recently it was in the in WSJ that Kroger is laying off a large number of people in its management position all across the country. Correct. The fact is, if companies don't focus on their customers, somebody else will. And the customers will go there, right? Meaning, uh, I don't care. Meaning, all I care about as a customer is what's my need. I don't care if it's getting delivered in, you know, supersonic jet or something else. Till the time the needs are met, they will go and use whichever company that provides that. In the case of grocery, Aldi is doing a great job compared to any other retailers. Yeah. In Europe and in the U.S. Sorry. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had my eye on Aldi for a few years now. Uh, Aldi, I, I've, I mean, I've known about the company for decades. They usually would be thought of as having these small little grocery stores that are like the third one in the market where it would be dominated by two major chains. But Aldi's been quietly doing a lot of things like you just described. And, you know, I, I can tell you candidly, I've asked around. You, you see all these grocery stores that will bring the food uh, right to your door and let you place the orders online. Yeah, you know, I've been asking around, and I have not really found many people that are having their groceries delivered to them. Absolutely, and, and yeah, the, what, the they're, what they're more likely to if they don't want to shop themselves, they are more likely to have their personal chef or their personal assistant do the shopping for them. They're not going online, typing in a shopping list, and having it brought to them. Uh, absolutely. And and there are research around why uh, many grocery delivery is huge in uh, Europe and other places, but it's not huge in the U.S. And there are two major concerns around that. It's very expensive. When it you is. get uh, it, it's phenomenal, it's 20 to 30 percent expensive. It's not only the delivery cost, uh, the companies usually mark up products and, and, and it adds up to a large amount of cost. Right. So uh, what, what uh, if, if you look at the research, the research basically points to two things that, you know, the, uh, quarter of the U.S. population have tried uh, home delivery. Only three percent end up ordering on a regular basis. Rest uh-huh. of them just don't use it anymore. Uh, there are two issues, cost and service. 
the service is a big important aspect. Yeah, people have to be home and you know they're not happy with the quality of delivery, uh, the quality of products that have been picked out. I Meaning, you know, grocery is a very personal, intimate thing, right? I Meaning, I may like the food that you may not like, right? So, so, right. so there are challenges associated with it. And uh, to my point is, yes, let's do the delivery, but let's also focus on what the customer needs. Are. They're looking for fresher, good quality, uh, you know, uh, affordable products. And I don't think the grocers are providing that. So if you look at in the U.S., the largest grocery category is really coming from the farmer's market. Yes. Um, not the traditional small store that you see in the middle of the town, but, you know, the, the big stores that keep a lot of fresh product and source from the local farmers, they are extremely popular. And they are the largest growing segment in the grocery market. And again, nobody talks about that, surprisingly, right? But if you right. look at the research and data, that's what is growing in the U.S. And fast, people like fresh products. They like locally grown products. They last longer in your refrigerator and they cost much, much lesser than what you typically pay at a large grocery store. So that's where the people are going. As they are becoming aware, that's where I like to shop. Meaning, you know, you get fresh products. Why not? Right, precisely. Uh, here's, my, um, here's my one quick item on that. I mean, going back to the idea of what I'm looking for, I kind of align with that data. I want fresh products, and I like if they can be organic, and as I like them even more if they can be locally sourced. And I, have a, I know of a couple supermarkets that are right near where I live, uh, regardless of which way I'm coming back to my place or which way I'm heading out from my place. And this is why delivery doesn't matter to me. I'm always within five minutes of two grocery stores, one of which is open 24 hours. I'm never going to be in a position where I can't run out and get something. And I can just, as a, as a daily practice, I keep a notepad and I keep it on my kitchen counter. And every time I notice I need to pick something up from the store, I write it down. And then when I leave that my house, I leave my apartment, I take the notepad with me. And if I have time, I stop by one of the stores and I just pick up whatever's on the list. It's not something that requires me to use an app or log in online or have a delivery person do. So moving along here, I want to get in a little bit more about this, uh, this disruption business. In your book, Customer Driven Disruption, you say that too many leaders focus on short-term performance to the detriment of their customers. Now, what do you mean by that? Uh, let, me, let me explain it. Um, starting 1970, there was a fundamental change in how leaders were compensated, corporate leaders were compensated. They were compensated based on stocks and stock options. And if you look at any corporate leader today, their compensation, 80, 70 to 80% of their compensation comes from stock and stock options. And, you know, uh, incentives drive people's behavior, right? Uh, and, and that's true with corporate leaders too. Uh, what you end up seeing is corporate leaders are trying to maximize their compensation, and therefore they're very focused on stock prices. And, and by that, you mean, you know, keeping the investors happy. Um, and they will do things that are completely disastrous in the long run, right? So I'll give you an example again. Uh, GE, right? The the last CEO of GE in I think 2017 and 18 uh, spent 25 billion dollars buying stocks, right? Uh, buying back stocks. Now, if you look at buying back stocks, what he's doing is logically it shouldn't change the share prices that much, 
But lately, it has been increasing share prices disproportionately, right? So most companies in the U.S. have been buying back stocks. And GECO did the same thing. Uh, he went out and bought a lot of stocks, 25 billions worth of stocks over two, two, two and a half years. And guess what happened? In 2018, they ran out of cash, right? And, and, and they didn't have money to pay for the pension. They didn't have money to pay for, you know, uh, the stuff that they need. He quit. And, and now companies struggling to meet the pension and other co commitments they have. So lately, you might have read in the newspaper that GE is actually trying to cut down on the pension payments. Uh, what you're saying is a, a, a behavior from leaders that is very narrowly focused on driving stock prices in the short term and not looking at the long-term health of the companies. So leaders are buying companies. Investors love it doesn't do anything for the customers. Look at what, again, I can go, if I can go back to the GE, same, same thing. They bought a large number of companies. They bought wrong companies, uh, meaning, you know, the couple of previous CEOs bought more, uh, I think, uh, one of the um, companies he bought was in the, you know, um, business of uh, the carbon business, uh, basically turbine business, and, and instead, consumers were going for renewable, you know, like solar and others. He didn't invest there. And now GE uh, Energy is in trouble. Uh, and I can <laughs> give you examples and examples from different industries on how leaders have done things that are completely nonsensical, right? And it comes back to bite them eventually. They, they do what Apple is doing, uh, makes incremental improvement, increases the price. Look at what's going on with the iPhone. People are not buying it. It just, it just seems uh, leaders are focused on investors and all they are trying to do is to please the investors instead of focusing on the long-term survival of their companies. And it's, it's epidemic, meaning, you know, most U.S. companies are like this right today. And, and we will see many companies fail as the consumers and customers are becoming more aware and they are going to choose things that meet their needs and very, very open to trying new things. And, and this is really a, a, a juncture when we would look at back and say, that's when things just went bad because companies did not focus on their customers. Right, right, right. And, you know, I think that's all very important to consider. So um, how can mergers, marketing, and global expansion separate these businesses from their customers? Because we discussed mergers earlier and we discussed acquisitions earlier. And now we're looking at how that can actually create a divide between the business and the customer. So how does that happen? So let's look at, uh, let's pick up something we haven't talked. Let's talk about marketing, right? Yes. Uh, historically, marketing has been looked at a way of selling products, right? Meaning uh, people who are not well-informed, they needed to be talked told what the products are and what the benefits are. And marketing started somewhere in the you know uh, mid to 1980s onwards when the TV came into play in a big way. Marketing became very important. Companies paid a lot of money. But you know what ends up happening with the marketing today is that it doesn't work. So let, let me say why it doesn't work. Um, nowadays, customers are very well informed. We have, you know, iPhones and you know smartphones and computers, and it's easy for us to then un look at what the peers are talking about any product. So all the money the companies are spending on advertising is not working, 
people are going to buy what they can, you know, they get. Uh, what their peers are telling them is good. So, so um, it, it's surprising. And, and people are also cutting the cords, right? Um, a large number of people are, are cutting the cable cords. So not many people are even being exposed to advertising. So what companies are doing is, hey, let's go and spend money on uh, online ads like on Facebook or Google. But research and actually uh, Procter & Gamble says, hey, most of the money that we spent online is wasted. Uh, and, and there was a WSJ article on it which detailed out their logic. Uh, Uber sued their, uh, their media company because they think the whole money was wasted. Basically, if you do the math behind marketing and if you actually put analytics, what you would find is marketing is not delivering results anymore. There was an HBR article a few years back which says the marketing is dead. People are more informed. You can't use marketing anymore to drive sales. Marketing can build awareness, but people don't rely on that anymore in their buying decisions. They look at peer reviews. They look at what, you know, uh, how the product performs. And if your product doesn't perform, however much you say it's a good product, they won't buy it. So that's on marketing, right? Yes. Uh, merger and acquisition. The reason merger and acquisition was such a hot thing in, 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 in the Wall Street is because come, uh, the investors or the Wall Street uh, folks expected mergers will increase profit. Uh, their belief is, hey, when you merge two companies, uh, you can combine the overheads of two companies and take out the headcount, right? Well, that doesn't work. That logic is false. What we have seen, companies after companies, is though there is layoff at the time of merger, those headcounts come back in different forms, such as you know outsourced vendors or you know contractors or temporary workers. Somebody has to do the work. So so it, those headcounts come back. What? ends up happening is customers have fewer choices. So look at what happened to airline mergers. Uh, after the airline merge, now we have four or five large companies, uh, airlines, covering 80% of the market. And yeah. you hear constant them complain about them, right? That customers oh, yeah. are not satisfied. And what did the airlines do? They couldn't keep the prices up, so therefore they started charging you for your baggage and every other thing that they can charge so that they can make money. That's what merger does to you. It reduces customer choices. It creates bad outcome for the employees. And, and you know, in the long run, it doesn't do any, any good for those companies. People will move away if the, customer, you know, the airlines don't perform. And that's what we will see uh, in any industry that relies on merger and acquisitions. Um, so that's the second one. The third one is, let's talk about global expansion. I mean, one of the things <laughs> uh, I, I used to see uh, when, when I, I was consulting last few years is that, hey, no problem. We have done this in the US. Let's just take this and, and go to uh, Asia and everything will work, right? All you need to do is a little bit of packaging change. Look at how Uber quickly went from the US to all across the world, right? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't work. If you look at now, Globally, people are very aware of their needs. So KFC was, China used to be the highest revenue, uh, profit, mar profitable market for KFC for the longest time. Uh, Chinese consumers love KFC, fried chicken, right? And, and, and it was amazing. But KFC couldn't sustain it. Uh, eventually, you know, the customers went back to their traditional dumplings and other food. 
And KFC sold out, spun off that business. The same thing happened with uh, McDonald's. Um, um, Economist, you know, uh, the magazine out of out of UK came out with an article that said companies are not making as much money in the Europe, and the footprint of the global companies are reducing. Um, GM is actually came out of Europe and and sold off their much of their stakes in Asia. Uh, we are seeing that with many many global companies, they are slowly getting beaten all around the world, and they are all coming back. Uh, Chinese handsets are ruling, um, you know, developing countries, and 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 Apple is not able to sell. The Samsung has the same problem too. I mean, they they followed Apple, and and now they are struggling to maintain their foothold in in um, most of the developing markets like India and other places. Chinese companies are doing great. The point really is, international companies are not focused on customers. The domestic companies are doing much better in addressing their customer needs, and therefore they are winning. But you think yeah. the, the story ends there. The story doesn't end there. Those guys now will come back to U.S. and start selling. So that's one of the reasons you see a lot of friction that's going on in the trade area because, yes, those companies who have figured out how to address customer needs internationally will start offering stuff here. Huawei is one of the major handset uh, providers in Europe. Now, they can sell to U.S. because of national security issues, but in Europe, they are one of the major providers. So that's exactly what, what we will see. If, if U.S. companies don't address their customer needs well, somebody else will, and that doesn't mean these are local competition. They can come from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Does that make sense, Adam? Well, yeah, I, I understood it once you explained the the issue with airlines and with all the mergers and acquisitions in airlines. And I've said many times, people complain about how often air travel is. And it seems that no matter what airlines try and do, as a general rule, and I know there are exceptions to this, so anybody wants to argue with this, yes, I know there are exceptions, Time and time again, what airlines find out is what people are really looking for is the lowest price they can get on their seat. Right. So that, so that we, we still have not reached the end of people's tolerance of the seats getting narrower, the flight attendants being more rude and abusive, uh, the, uh, the, the, the flight takeoff times being totally skewed, uh, people missing their connections, uh, flights getting over books. We haven't seen anywhere near the end of people's tolerance of that because they still want their seat price to get lower. That's true. But look at Southwest, though. Southwest is one of the large, uh, you know, airline. They have very good customer satisfaction. People who fly Southwest, Southwest, are, you know, face the same thing, narrower seats and all that. But they are very happy. So, there are things companies can do in order to address their customer needs. Of course, there is a competition on price and, you know, making it affordable. But there are niche things that can be done in order to improve customer experience. Southwest has a dedicated follower flyers who fly with them, right? All the right. time, point to point. If I have a Southwest option in any route, I will go Southwest because I know their flights are always on time. They're quick at the gates, right? And, you know, they don't nickel and dime you like many other airlines does. So why not? Um, maybe you don't get assigned seat, but, you know, most of the time, I really don't care. All I'm caring about is how quickly I can go from point A to point B without having to spend a fortune. 
and Southwest works out great. There will be people like that in every industry who would address those customer needs. Discount airlines in, in Europe are killing the full service airline in Europe. Um, in last 10 years, all, uh, all the discount airlines like Lion Air and others have taken a big chunk of the market out from the, uh, from, from the full service airlines. Uh, basically, they are targeting the tourist segment and, and price conscious segment, and they are offering bare boon kind of a service. Now, there are a lot of customer pushback on them, uh, complaints with them, but you know they have addressed the need of that niche very well, and full service airlines are struggling against it. So yes, the airlines industry has to figure out how to address. I, I personally think the the concept of providing full service airlines is is kind of 1990s idea, right? Uh, you can't have the airline plane with both business class and the economic class people being fitted, and then you're able to do things well for both segments. There needs to be a rethink on how airlines address their customer needs. Um, but some companies are doing it. Now, are they doing it well? No. What does that mean? Somebody else will figure out a better way of doing that. But at least we see a movement towards it, right? I don't know if that makes sense, Adam. Well, I, I understand perfectly. I, I get exactly where you're coming from. So um, you've also said that generational shifts are leading to changes in the market. So what, is, what does that have to do with this? <laughs> well, gener- so, so, so the customer needs are changing, but they are changing because of many reasons. And one of the main reasons, if you dive deeper, you would know one of the main reasons is the generation change. Baby boomers used to be the you know driving engine of U.S. economy, and actually all around the world, you know, the baby boomers have been really driven the economy all around the world, right? Now they are all retiring, and they are becoming a smaller segment. And the segment that's becoming bigger and bigger is the millennials, and followed that would be uh, Gen Z, Generation Z. There is a distinct difference between baby boomers and millennials. Uh, millennials are much better informed. They grew up in the age of internet and information, and they have a large amount of uh, debt, right? Education debt and all that. They yeah. don't have as much disposable income, right? So they are very price and cost conscious, and they are also extremely well informed. So what does that mean? It means my father and my parents were very, you know, averse to trying new things because they didn't know which product is better. And so they stuck with the name branded product that they have always used or their parents have used. Millennials don't care. If your product serve needs better and their peer group tells them it's a good product, they will try it. They are much more health conscious, right? Uh, they are they are able to throw things in the head. They, they won't own cars anymore because guess what? Car, car, car hailing is much cheaper. Yeah. They are ready to break the molds which people thought are sacrosanct. So I, and I give an example of Japanese millennial, right? This is, I mean, Japan is a very conservative society in many ways than not one, right? But their millennials are so different from their previous generation. They don't like to drive cars. They don't own cars. They don't, have watches, they don't work long hours, meaning that generation is completely different uh, from, from, from their previous generations. And Japanese companies are struggling to address those needs. 
the way U.S. corporations are struggling to address the needs of U.S. millennials. So look at what's going on with the packaged food industry. Millennials love healthy food, and the packaged food industry hasn't figured out how to provide healthy food uh, options. And much of that industry is dealing, right? The, uh, Kraft and others are, 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 are struggling to figure out how to survive. They have, meaning the, the boards are changing the leaders and everything. But the fundamentally, unless your merchandise and products are attractive to the customers, they're not going to buy it. So by changing the you know, CEOs, nothing is happening because they haven't changed the focus of their corporations. And, and that industry is going down the drain. And the problem with millennials is second fold, not problem. Actually, this is interesting if you are an entrepreneur, is that they change their, their taste pretty quickly. So, for example, um, organic milk was a huge deal a few years back, if you remember, right? Meaning, you know, uh, they, they were hard, people were buying it, and, you know, and, and, and farmers invested a lot of money in making organic milk. Over yeah. the last few years, organic uh, uh, milk prices went up, but the alternative, like, you know, the coconut and, and almond milk, became cheaper. So, millennials have started using the alternate milk. And now, even though there is a large supply of organic milk, they have excess. The prices are falling. The point with millennials is you have to address multiple needs of theirs very, very well. One is, of course, better quality, healthier foods and all that, but also affordability. Uh, they don't have large, a lot of disposable income. The same is true with the uh, millennials love personalization, right? Meaning they like... There are two things uh, about millennials that are unique. One is they, of course, like uh, they have a lot of debt, uh, debt, debt, and all that. But they also are very uh, individualized. How do I call it? They are. They like to be different from others, right? I mean, they, they they want to have a unique characteristic. So they love personalized product, and that's why you see a lot of tailoring and other options are coming back because of that need for personalization. None of the companies are doing it well. One of the reasons why uh, retailers are struggling is because the newer generations don't buy cookie-cutter clothes anymore. When they buy, but they are not buying as much as their parents used to do. And they are looking for tailored solution, right? So, so, so they're looking for people who would give them style advice and, bu and buy things that are unique to them. Retail don't, doesn't do that, and therefore the retail is struggling. And it will not end there. It will... <laughs> go on to other industries. Automotive industry is in a way is in, is in decline because people don't buy cars anymore. It's become so expensive. Ride hailing is coming in. And if there are better solutions, millennials will adopt that as well. It's a generational change that I don't think the corporate leaders good, understand good, good, how good, to address. Good. So um, here's some, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that, that, that's the point, sorry. So the generalization change is a huge deal, and I don't think the corporate leaders really understand how best to address it in a way that will drive their business results, right? And every time I talk about millennials to corporate leaders, they kind of look at me as if, you know, they're uh, deer on the, uh, looking at the headlight, right? Many, they have no idea how to address these guys. Many, all the norms of marketing and, you know, um, luxury products and all that, has is gone. 
things that people thought brands are sacrosanct, brands are not sacrosanct anymore. It's a different world and different way of addressing it. And that's why in the book, I give five strategies that companies can use to address the needs of newer generation. One of the very important thing in order to address the needs of millennials is your operations has to be good. The way I try to explain it, if you're in a restaurant business, if you want really the newer generation to come in, your food has to be extremely good. Your operations have to be good. Then you have to also add service element to it and other things that they like. But if your food is not good, don't expect you to succeed to be able to succeed in the market, even if you have the best service. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, we have about 15 minutes left here, and there I know there are so many things we could discuss here, and we may not get to all of them. But I want to look at corporate organizations and how they function. So putting those two terms together, most companies are organized functionally. They have departments on an org chart. You got your sales, your marketing, your manufacturing, your finance, your customer service, your accounting, what have you. But you urge the use of what are known as customer-facing groups. Uh, Why is that, and what does that actually look like in practice? Sure. Um, So let's look at how our current organization structure come into play, right? Our current structure came into play during Industrial Revolution, where we kind of said, hey, people need to specialize, right? They need to specialize. Think about it in, in, in a production line. Somebody has to do this, then they have to give it to somebody else. They, they put a nut on it, you know, in a car. Henry Ford model, right? The whole concept of specialization came in. And therefore, you know, you had people that became very good at one thing and not everything. But what it also did is that it took the focus away from the end customer to the task, right? So the same principle was utilized to create organization structure. Somebody has to specialize in marketing. Somebody has to specialize in operations. Somebody has to specialize in finance. They are functional organizations that don't even look at what customers are working. So what ends up happening is organization silos, right? Large number of articles been written saying, oh, organization silos are so bad, and therefore we need to break the organization silo and have a matrix organization and all that. But they don't fundamentally address the problem. The problem is none of these organizations are customer-facing. None of those organization incentives are driven by how companies are doing in the market. Instead, they are driven by how well employees keep their bosses happy, right? Meaning it's, you look at all the incentives, it's all about, uh, can I keep my boss happy? Therefore, I keep my work. Nowhere it says, do you keep your customers happy? Therefore, you keep your job, right? But if you're running a business, isn't it what you want? You want your employees to to keep your customers happy because that's how you survive. I mean, that's what the small businesses do, right? Uh, So what I propose in this book is a way that, Many of the companies are doing it, like Hire does it, which is Hire is one of the Chinese companies. What they are doing is they are saying, our organization has become distant from customers, so we need to get closer to customers. And the way to do it is to create organizations that are customer-facing. Basically, what they are saying is, take away all these functional silos, put all these guys together as a team, and let them figure out how best to address the needs of the customer, Right. Yeah. What it does is 
your organization becomes very close to customers. And if the customer needs changes, they are able to move faster with the customer and address their needs. Hire has started as a, you know, uh, as a bankrupt company. And now they are one of the largest providers uh, of uh, white goods or, you know, a lot of uh, what you call refrigerators and stuff worldwide. Um, The point of a customer facing group is essentially saying you need to have an organization that addresses the customer needs and then they figure out how best to deliver on it. So will that, does that mean we will not have any organization, standard organizations like operations and stuff? No, we will have platforms or, you know, organizations that deliver services. But if you're 90% or large portion of your organization is customer facing, then your back, 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 back of the house uh, functions also become very tuned to what's needed in the market to be successful, right? That's what I talk about in the book. Um, one of the things, now many companies, services companies are also very customer focused, right? You look at the outsourcing firms, they are all designed to, like facilities and other, all designed around accounts, they, they service accounts. What they don't do well is that they don't focus on their operations. So they are all about, hey, how can I deliver what customers work asking for without looking at how can I be much better than anybody else in providing the service? So a customer-facing organization, the way I was talking about in the book, not only addresses the customer needs, is closer to customers, but also is excellent in operations so that they are able to deliver those services better than anybody in the market. And um, hire is a very good case example on seeing how it's done well in a business environment. Uh, okay. It's a Chinese company, but it, it, it's, it's, it has done many things that are amazing. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, Adam. Okay. Um, yeah, it does. All right. So oh, is, that, is that all you had to say about that? Uh, well, I can talk about culture if you want me to. I just talked about the structure. I yeah, talk about- yeah. yeah, I think culture would be a great place for us to end up because, to me, culture is a significant driver. So please, take it away on culture. Okay. So let's talk about the culture a little bit, right? So structure is one. Incentive is what we talked about earlier. One of the things companies should also do is to look at their culture, right? Uh, most companies' culture is essentially to drive the way I call it group cohesiveness, right? Uh, they yeah. give free food. They have, you know, ways of yeah, executives presenting something and open offices and things like that. They are meant to uh, show that, hey, we are new and different. What they don't really do is focus the organization towards customers. Now, companies that are very good at uh, customer-focused culture, like Southwest uh, or, or, uh, uh, or Disney and others, it, they essentially develop a culture that encourages better service to customers. Um, so, so Southwest, uh, I was just trying to get to that. Uh, Southwest motto is, hey, we, are, uh, we fly people, but we are a customer service organization, right? And they, they say it in a much better way than I did. Uh, Disney actually trains their uh, staff to uh, be empathetic to their customers and, and, and be, you know, be uh, proactive in addressing customer problems even before they arise, right? Uh, 
And the companies that do that very well are the ones are the ones that have customer focused culture. So yes, meaning you know culture plays a very important role in ensuring uh, that um, that your organization is focused on culture. In the book, I talk about many other things that you know <laughs> that that would help companies to become much more focused to to their uh, to their customers. Um, so I don't know, Adam, how how much deeper you want to go. Uh, let's see how, how much deeper can you go in three minutes? Uh, because I'm really enjoying this and I think our listeners are as well. Well, um, so, so let's, let's take a step back and, and, and go over this, right? What, yes. what does it mean to be a customer focused, right? I mean, everybody would say, Hey, we are all customer focused. Customer focus is all about us understanding customer needs. That's what, first and foremost, right? Which basically means not just hearing the customers, but listening to their needs, which is like the doctors does, right? When you go to the doctor with a fever, they actually spend a lot of time understanding what's really going on. And then they do tests and all that. And then they tell you, give you medicine. That's exactly what we mean by uh, listening to customers, which is essentially understanding what is the driver, driving force of the customer needs and therefore what's needed uh, for, to address the customer need, right? The second is to figure out what strategies are needed to address those customer needs. So faster transportation we talked about. So what strategies can we do if I am an automotive company in order to address the need? Once we figure that strategy out, then we need operations. We need people and organization to deliver on this better than anybody else. Most newer, new generation uh, companies struggle with that. Even Tesla struggles with that, right? Yeah. Um, Uber struggles with that. Look at the losses they're making. Uh, Airbnb, I can keep naming it. People, people struggle with that, right? And that fourth thing is to then, once you've figured out your operations, then figure out what kind of organization structure is needed in order to be better at providing uh, addressing the customer needs better than anybody else in the market. So I think if you can do the four things, it works out much better. Adam, does that help? Yeah, I think it does help. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know, you've given us a lot to think about today, Suman. I really want to thank you for taking the time to visit us here at Business Creators Radio Show. Now, you mentioned to me in the beginning that as we wrap up here, you have a little something for our listeners. So if you uh, could take the floor for a moment and tell us, uh, what they can do to engage with you, maybe how they can get your book or something like that. That'd be, I think, a great way to end up. And I know we have some people listening in right now that are quite curious in this topic and would like to explore further for themselves. Sounds good. Um, the, my book, Customer Driven Disruption, is uh, available on Amazon. Uh, it's available in hard copy. It's available uh, in ebooks, um, uh, Kindle copy, and also audio. Uh, audible so so it's available in many formats the book actually lays out some of the things i discuss in very much detailed way and and talks about the five strategies i think what's really neat in this book personally is a questionnaire at the end that can help any company to figure out how uh, whether they are at the risk of disruption and what they can do in order to become uh, much more customer focus and and have a much more successful you know uh, yeah. outcome uh, for their uh, employees, their investors, and everybody else. 
Right. So my, my thing would be, take a look at that questionnaire. It will help you like uh, never before. Awesome. Awesome. Very much so. All right. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time here. And Suman Sarkar of 3-S-Consulting.com. That's how you spell it out. 3-S-Consulting.com. Thank you so much for being with us here today to share with us about how customers are the drivers of business disruption. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me today. Appreciate you, it. You bet. And we trust you enjoy today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>